Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a podcast that explores the art and science of leadership. I'm Kate Arms. I'm Alyssa Dickman. I'm Nitya Shaker. Each episode, we deep dive into one leadership book to share what we liked and what we think you can apply to your own personal leadership journey. So we're going to talk today about real change, mindfulness to heal ourselves and the world by Sharon Salzberg. And I'm not even sure where to start. I kind of want to just start with a very open question. The title itself is Real Change. And then the subtitle, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World. I'm curious to know just your response to those two parts of the title being put together. Yeah, now having read the book, it makes me think a lot about what are people using mindfulness for? And when I see the title and the subtitle, that juxtaposition brings up for me that mindfulness and meditation and these things that have become maybe buzzwords, they have a purpose. It's to do something with them. And and sure, not that it always has to. I think they're, they're great for their own sake too. But I think the title made me think about What's the point of doing it? To me, this book answers that is like, yeah, but really what's the point? And the title Real Change gets at that. And it's, I think, made me think of both internal change, change in ourselves and external change, change in the world. And especially if you consider when she wrote this book and when it came out, it came out in early 2020, I'm pretty sure. Um, I think that's right. So yeah, she had just finished it, but it hadn't come to press when the pandemic hit. She talks about that in the forward or in the introduction. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it sort of puts the concept of even just social change into, into perspective, just given how the last few years have been in the world. But even regardless of that, there's always the opportunity for internal change. And um, so that was kind of my reflection on it. Mm. Yeah. I, part of why I wanted to read this book is actually this title and subtitle pairing because it fits with my understanding of a power of mindfulness and a power of attention and embodiment that I've had and been working with for 15 years now, maybe more than that. And it's hard to articulate. And it makes me really happy when people who have a big following and practice articulating it really try and explain what they're getting at. I am reminded most clearly in terms of what you said, Nithya, of a session that I went to in the fall, right before the pandemic at a Zen temple in the Toronto area. And I attended a talk by the Roshi that was an introduction to Zen. And one of the things that he talked about is that Zen practice can have several different purposes and the intention that you go into practice sets what you get out of it. And so the sort of mainstream marketing approach to Zen as like, go to the spa and listen to music and Mm -hmm. like zone out for an hour is a purpose that meditation can serve and it can be mindful. It can also be a form of zoning out. Uh, And I've seen people use meditation as a way of really actually going so deeply internal that they detach 
from the external world and they really use it as not so much a way of changing themselves to change the world, but really a way of changing themselves so that the world doesn't hurt them. Yeah. And then there are sort of other things that you can use practice for. And then in the Zen world, like the the ultimate one is enlightenment or even putting off your own enlightenment to come back and be a bodhisattva, which is to put off your own enlightenment in service of the world becoming enlightened. And that form of Zen matches what I hear when I read the title of this book, that real change, like there's a transformational, deep, I'm going to change myself in service of changing the world. And I'm going to put off my ability to get out of the pain of the world in order to keep coming back to help transform the world. I really appreciate that. I think what drew me to this book is that personally, as much as I try to practice mindfulness, I don't myself have a mindfulness practice. So reading about her experience and about the people that she brings into the book and talks about really helped draw that connection for me because I know that all of us spend a lot of time in the area of change, in the area of organizational change, in the Mm -hmm. area of personal behavior change. And so seeing that she comes at this through that lens of mindfulness was just a new way for me to explore this. There was something she said very early in the book that really stuck with me. And I think it gets to what you're saying, Kate, is she talks about having put something up on Twitter about positive thoughts or prayer and getting a lot of backlash about it. And then going back and saying that she is by no means saying that meditation, prayer, and positive thoughts are a replacement for action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, But the idea that we need a connection to something bigger to have the energy to keep acting. Mm -hmm. That to me was a real light bulb moment that just flipped the script for me a little bit to look at the idea of mindfulness or Zen, as you said, not being just about tuning out, but actually a way of tuning in to a greater degree and in a deeper way to then be able to bring something more impactful to the world. Yeah. I was really struck reading this book and I went back and had a look at the exercises after doing it because I just sort of read through it once and I didn't sort of pay much attention to the exercises. And then I went back and it confirmed the sense that I'd gotten reading it, that mindfulness is in the subtitle, but the practices she describes are loving kindness practices. Yeah. I found this so validating because I added a serious loving kindness practice to my own meditative practices about three years ago. And it was crucial for my being able to use like what I know about self-compassion and what I know about the power of optimism and love to overcome fear to actually stay in my body for the mindfulness when there was negative stuff going on. So it just sort of really struck me that yes, mindfulness is the buzzword and the attention and the presence that mindfulness is part of is really, really important. But the loving kindness practice changes everything. It really does. I probably sit somewhere between the two of you in terms of my own practice, which is that 
I kind of have a practice and I'm so, so at keeping up with it. <laughs> so yeah, on paper, I have one. Occasionally I do it. Don't do it nearly as often as I should. But yeah, the, the loving kindness practice is, um, that's when I was introduced to uh, a few years ago. And frankly, among all the various practices that are out there, it's one I've personally struggled with. And this book helped me a little bit in understanding maybe why I struggle with it um, in that, um, Alyssa, you mentioned activating our energy and activating our courage to, to, to do something and to, to change the world in a real way. I think that that necessarily involves seeing something bigger than yourself, whether that's a social cause or something else. And I remember I could never really identify with that. And, um, you know, at the risk of sounding, uh, you know, um, uh, maybe a little behind the times here, I, I could never really kind of rack my brain to say like, what is that bigger thing, bigger than myself that I'm actually connected to? It was a really hard question for me to answer. And I think through the loving kindness practices and the other things that are in this book, the way I see Sharon Salzberg answering that question is, well, it's, it's each other. It's interconnectedness is the bigger purpose. For some people, it might also be climate change or some other thing, which right. is great, but it's, it's each other and it's humanity is the bigger purpose. It almost seems too simple to even say out loud, but it's profound. It, it took me reading this book to actually see that. And I'm still working on it, but I, I get it intellectually now in a way that I didn't before. Yeah. yeah. I went through a major existential crisis as a teenager and I read the existential philosophers and I just one existential crisis as a teenager. <laughs> well, <laughs> I went through a major existential crisis as a teenager. Not, not that I'm projecting. <laughs> and I, and I, read a lot of philosophers as a response and Camus in particular, so much of his writing comes from the, the world is so awful. Why don't we just kill ourselves? Like wrestling with trying to answer that question. Mm -hmm. And the absurd of the absurdist philosophers is the world is so awful and we keep sticking around. Like that's what's absurd from, from <laughs> that perspective. And like, why? And his answer is love for the people around us that we are connected to and beauty and those moments of aesthetic arrest that kick us into awe and wonder. That was his answer. Like that was enough. That was what made it all okay. That so much of the world is so painful. It took me a while to get that into my body, but having read that that was enough of an answer for this deep, deep thinker living through a deeply, deeply painful time in the world. Like I kept looking for it to be enough. And now when my kids ask me how I deal with things, like love and beauty are actually my answers. Hmm. It's interesting because she talks a lot. It comes up in multiple different places in the book about art and theater and what that does for helping people increase their empathy, increase their mm -hmm. understanding. And I loved that part. I loved how she articulated that. I know that as a theater fan that I get a lot from that and that one of the greatest experiences is being part of that communal experience where suddenly everybody is looking at something in a different way or feeling the same 
emotion because Mm -hmm. of what's happening on stage. To me, that was just so interesting that it was sprinkled throughout this book as another aspect of mindfulness and awareness. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that she lands on in this piece is that is the connection between healing ourselves and healing the world. Like the connection there is actually that the world is made up of us and all of the other things in it. And we are totally integrated into the world. And so we spill out into that, which is beyond us Mm -hmm. when we change who we are. And how we are in the world, which isn't something that's necessarily obvious to people. We sort of, we kind of have tunnel vision about our own impact a lot of the time. (laughs) Yep. And here we are talking about why it's a leadership book. Well done. Here we go. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Tunnel vision about our impact. Yes. Sorry. (laughs) There's an unintentional segue, but (laughs) here we are. It was perfect. Those are the best. I love them. Keep going. Yeah. And I include myself in this, that we just go about the world not really seeing or feeling that connectedness and the spillover effect, you could say, of that impact and of our presence in the world, really at all. I mean, unless it's super obvious and someone's giving us feedback or something like that, we don't realize that even energetically we're spilling out in that way. And that 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 internal change, even a change in outlook or, or in mindset can have that effect. And, and actually, you know, I just used the words, but it made me actually think of the outward mindset, which we've read before. And the connection for me was how in that book, the mindset shift alone kind of enables you to behave differently with others and put others first and things. And there is kind of a natural tie here. But what I like about this book is that it, it provides those practices on how to do that and how to build the muscle. It's almost like you're 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 training up for the for the moments in which you're going to need it through these practices. Yeah. Yeah, that takes us at least in my head to the topic of resilience mm-hmm. that she talks about because obviously we're hearing more and more about resilience as we've all been in such a state of uncertainty and how do we continue and how do we bounce back from difficult situations? And I really liked the fact that she talked specifically about resilience in the context of this book. What were your thoughts? Um, So as someone who's written a book called the Extreme Resilience Workbook, I feel like I have something to say on the (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I loved about her discussion of resilience was how much it really looked at, we have to be with the pain and we have to look at the grief and we have to have presence with it in order to truly be resilient. And this is a thing that I have been really, really working with in my work in organizational change is really trying to help organizations that don't like to feel (laughs) Mm -hmm. grief as part of the change process. 
because what happens if we don't grieve and we just sort of put a lid on it and we act like everything's okay is we might be functionally sort of back to where we were, but there's a rigidity that comes along with it. That's sort of like, here's how we've put ourselves back in the box and we've like shoved ourselves back in so that we can move forward. And it makes us less flexible. We become rigid and it, so we become more robust but also more fragile because it takes energy to maintain that little box that we've put ourselves in. This deep resilience that she is talking about, about going through the pain, being with it, letting our bodies metabolize it so that we actually feel all the feelings. Now we're in 15 commitments land. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like thinking of like you went to Outward Minds that I went to 15 commitments and feel all the feelings. If we can actually process it through our bodies, we release it and we transmute it and we turn it into love. If we can stay open in the face of this pain in community, like we get stronger. Yeah. I don't remember who it was that she was quoting, but the idea of transportable tranquility mm-hmm. was something that I wanted to write down and try to keep with me. And that idea of it's not about freedom from the storm, mm-hmm. but peace within it. I think that also gets to things that we've talked about in terms of, okay, what's here now? How do Mm -hmm. I create from this? So how do I stay at peace in a way that gives me that energy to respond to whatever's going on without getting caught up in the swirl and getting lost in, in the storm itself, but being able to be strong in who I am and what my values are and what's important, even in the midst of a storm that could otherwise just sweep me away. Yeah. That reminds me a lot of, I believe this was an example in the book, a story from the Buddha who was asked, how did you cross the flood? And I hope I get these, these details, right. But there is, there's a story in there around, you know, just this giant flood, stormy river type of thing. And, and when the Buddha was asked, you know, how did you cross it? Uh, and I'm totally paraphrasing here, <laughs> so, uh, but you can, her, her words are much more beautiful than, than mine will be. But it was, it was essentially along the lines of, you know, I, I didn't stop and I didn't rush it, right? It was like, I, I kept moving, but I also didn't rush it because rushing it, kind of like what you're saying, Alyssa, would have meant getting caught up in it and swirling and flailing and, you know, thrashing around. And stopping altogether would have meant sinking into into the water. And neither of those really help you cross and actually move through it. Other than that balance, you could say, between moving and not rushing. Because if you get into the fight, flight, freeze mode, Mm-hmm. then it's not going to help you cross. Right. But it's, but it's that that's, I think where the resilience comes in. It's that flexibility between saying, okay, now I need to slow down. Now I need to speed up. And you don't want to exhaust yourself as you're doing it, because that again is putting yourself in a box and becoming rigid. That's just endurance. That's just, I got to get through this, you know? yeah. which doesn't leave you very flexible for the next wave one mile away or whatever. So the story listening to it, you telling it in this context, I'm thinking of the coaching arc and the arc of a coaching conversation and how in a coaching conversation, you go into the problem, 
you hang out in the problem for a while. You actually sort of spend some time unpacking so that you take away the fear around the problem so that you can open up the creativity and the curiosity and the places where inspiration comes in and ideas come in. And then you end with us. So what are we going to do about it? Like, what are you going to like? It Mm -hmm. turns into action planning. It turns into an action step. And it's that transmutation from I'm stuck through being with the problem for a while into action. That is this process of resilience. Yeah. There's also an interesting connection between resilience and hope. Because Nithya, as you were telling that story, you, you mentioned the fight or flight instinct. And again, it was just a different frame for me to read her writing about seeing fighting or fleeing as signs of hope Mm. and freezing being lanced through with strands of hopelessness. Tracking back to what you were saying at the end, like at least some action, there's some hope. When you become so overwhelmed that you stop moving, Mm -hmm. that's when you need to look for, have you, have you lost hope? Is there hopelessness Mm. there that you kind of need to deal with first before you can then determine your next action? There were, again, just a couple of places where she talked about that. There was a quote about hope from Vaclav Havel that I had never heard before, which was... I'm just laughing because I was about to go to exactly the same quote. (laughs) Okay, so I'll just just share the quote and then hand it over to you, Kate. Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that it's worth doing no matter how it turns out. Yeah. That was a new lens on hope for me to take in and reflect on. So Kate, where were you going to go? I just wasn't going to go to that, to the quote that it's worth doing anyway. And we talk a lot about values in our conversations. We talk a lot about mission and purpose. This gets to the heart of it. It's that conviction that it's worth doing no matter how it turns out, it's worth doing just because it's the right thing to do. We've talked in so many contexts about how that conviction of this is my mission, this is my purpose, these are my values, this is where I'm going to take my stand. It creates the courage to move forward in the face of, I don't know what's going to happen and I don't know how it's going to turn out. When we talk about leadership and we talk about leadership presence in hard times, this conviction that we can move forward, we will move forward, and we're going to do this because it's the thing to do, then it's the thing that needs to happen. People follow that energy. Mm. It's what inspires us, makes us feel like as human beings, we matter if we can put our energy behind a leader who has that kind of conviction and is willing to hope in the face of apparent hopelessness. Yeah. And this book too is a reminder that doing that whether as a leader or someone who's, you know, following a leader that you're inspired by, that that takes energy and uh-huh. doesn't just happen, you know? And so for anyone listening or maybe who has read a, this book thing like, God, I just can't do that right now. I think what the book posits is, well, you can train yourself or help yourself do it because it takes energy. It takes courage. And if you feel like you don't have it, first of all, you do somewhere, but you just have to activate it, you know, and, and it's a consistent practice that you need to be patient with yourself on, but that that's, that's possible at the end of it for sure. Yeah. The, the reason that we collapse 
into that freeze mode when we're overwhelmed is because we're energy conserving machines. And if we don't have hope, it's much better to not try than to do. That's the assessment that our bodies make. And that's why we give up. So this piece of hope is like, it's actually that like, and why it takes energy is like, yeah, moving forward just because we think that it might possibly lead somewhere is in religious language is an act of faith. In secular language, it's like serious courage, it's commitment. It's a big deal and it is counterintuitive. So I think this is where I need some help because I have these two competing or sort of competing concepts, which is looking at hope differently in terms of hope being about something being worth doing no matter how it turns out. And then at the same time though, hope is not a strategy. Mm. You can't just hope that something is not going to happen. She talks about this specifically with emotions. You know, you can't just hope that the scary feelings aren't going to come, or you can't just hope. I agree with both and I know they go together. I just haven't yet made the connection. So is it that thinking about hope needing courage, does that make the connection that there has to be some courage within hope? You have to take some action on hope, that if it's just passive, hoping that something isn't going to happen, that doesn't put you in a good position when you know stuff is probably going to happen anyway. I have a perspective on this, Alyssa, which is that I want to analogize it to you know, imagine you're in college or whatever, and about to go take a final exam that you're super nervous about. And you see somebody near you who is praying or who is touching their lucky pendant or or something along those lines, or meditating or something like that, right? Um, That in its whatever practice they're doing, itself isn't going to give them an A on that exam, you need a strategy or you need to know your calculus, (laughs) whatever the situation is, you you got to know your stuff. But I almost see the connection. If you think about what they're doing as having hope and practicing the building of that hope that unlocks something in them, that's that activator that unlocks the energy. Yes, but but also the strategy and the and the intellect and everything else that you're, you're kind of kept from that, unless you are, you know, getting at peace with where you are, whatever the practice may be, putting loving kindness out into the world. For some people that's praying. That assists in the unlocking of the skill that's needed to do the thing. That's my read on it. I appreciate that because I had a mentor who would always say hope is not a strategy. And I do believe that. So the way you just describe that helps me with that connection that it's not hope alone. You still need to be prepared. You still need to have skills and other strategies. Hope is really, from her perspective, this bigger thing about why you even attempt to do things. Yeah. I mean, I would go a little bit further in that I would suggest that one of the things that happens when we are in danger of losing hope or we do lose hope is we don't actually think we have the skills to do the thing. And we might not even know what skills it would be. So building a strategy is really hard. We have to find the hope to even start exploring, taking the steps that might 
actually move in the right direction, but we won't know until we get a little further and try and see if it's actually working. And so the strategy then is exploring and trying a few things and seeing what we can learn by doing things. We need the hope to find the energy and the willingness to be like, okay, I want to accomplish the thing and I'm going to try doing these things that I don't even know if it's quite in the right direction. And to possibly try again if you fail, (laughs) because that's the other thing. I mean, back to my college exam, if you work really hard and you still do really badly on it, the hope presumably builds the resilience to say, well, I'm not going to lose everything because of this. I'm going to go in a different direction or I'm going to take this class or whatever action comes after that, that you have the motivation to do that because you have built the hope and the resilience that comes with that. Yeah, because the most easy lesson to learn from trying and failing is, oh, don't try that again. Yeah, <laughs> which although understandable, it's a rigid mindset, right? It's not a resilient and, and, one. And maybe don't try exactly that again. Maybe yeah. try something slightly <laughs> different, but the tendency is to be like, don't even go in that direction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to ask you two, which way you want to go? Do you want to talk about anger? Do you want to talk about the identity stuff? I I mean, I'd vote for anger. Okay. Let's go there then. Yeah, I could go either way. Okay. So she also talks about harnessing the energy of anger. And that was, again, another place where I think there had been a bunch of thoughts just kind of swirling around in my own head. And then she puts it into words that make something that to me was really abstract, much more concrete. And the idea of how does, how do we harness the energy of anger to impact change? What I liked about this discussion was it reinforced an overall concept in the book, which is that in order to do something constructive with anger, that you have to first be with it and not fight it, not make it wrong, Mm -hmm. which that's counterintuitive, at least for me. Uh, (laughs) I've been told my whole life anger is wrong. We see countless examples of anger gone wrong. And that's also a risk, I think, of a lot of other pieces of literature and the kind of mindfulness genre broadly. A lot of them, I think, risk making things like anger or hate and things like that wrong. And what I liked here was, you know, you actually have to be with it. And in order to be with it, you can't make it wrong. Those are at odds. <laughs> and that that enables you to, to do something with it. There was a, an example, I believe, about a, a child who was in some sort of a behavioral improvement type of a program in school for anger issues. And that after going through mindfulness training of one kind or another as part of the of part of the behavioral program, this child, and I really love this anecdote, got really angry because of something somebody said, but instead of fighting them and, and, and getting violent as they usually did in the past, they got angry when then said to the other kid who had provoked the whole thing, you're lucky I meditate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Which, which yes. um, and I'm paraphrasing. What I love about that is the kid was still pretty darn angry by by whatever had been said by the by the other person. And so the anger was there, but this child was able to be present enough with the anger and yet not act on it in a violent way, <laughs> at least in part due to due to meditation. Was I think the the point of that story, and I think it's a beautiful illustration of how you can not make anger wrong, be with it, have it actually exist and yet have enough of that distance from it to where you can choose your response. Yeah, I found myself thinking about the quote that I know you love, Alyssa, and I will paraphrase wrongly and you will... (laughs) 
uh, Victor Frankl's of the freedom is the gap between stimulus and response and that choice, that moment of choice between stimulus and response. You, Nithya, by pulling up that story, pull up why meditation is the heart of this is that meditation is a way of training your ability to create that pause. When we feel strong emotions, they do come with the energy to do something. And the positive emotions, the energy is aimed towards more of that. And the emotions we judge as negative are the energy to move away from that. The pause is so powerful because it gives us the space to go, okay, I'm angry. The message of anger is there is something that is wrong in this moment that is painful, that I am motivated to change. And if you can pause and be with the anger long enough to recognize, oh, I'm getting the message that something wants to change or that I want something to change and then get curious what provoked that anger. Then you start being able to ask the questions like, is it because this person reminded me of something that somebody did on the playground when I was five? And now that I'm 45, I should probably not respond the way that I did on the playground, (laughs) right? Like (laughs) it gives us that place if we can have choice and we can look at it, but we still have the adrenaline in our system that is literally the energy our bodies will need to take action. And here we are, we've just come out of a conversation about how much energy it takes to find hope and take action. Yes. If we make anger wrong, we make that energy wrong. And then we depower ourselves. I really like that language of anger as a signal emotion. And then expanding on that and just looking at our emotions as signals. What are they telling us? And the other thing that stuck out to me was the idea of anger as having an addictive quality. Mm. And what does... (laughs) Doesn't righteous anger feel delicious? Yes. Because it makes us like, it's like, I am so right. Like I got this and here I am fueled up to like charge in and save the day. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And just getting addicted to that adrenaline without slowing down, examining it and deciding, okay, so what is this telling me about what I want to do and how worn out can we get if we stay in that anger and it doesn't do anyone any good? No. I mean, it's why, it's why doom scrolling and outrage scrolling of the news is such a bad idea for our mental health. Yeah. And exhaustion is a really key thing there, Alyssa, that you brought up that um, if you ever think about a time when you've been really angry and, and swirled in it (laughs) the way I certainly have (laughs) partly because it feels so good and righteous and all that but but just not feeling a particular sense of control over it the aftermath of that I know for me has always been exhaustion it Mm -hmm. hasn't been back to equilibrium it's been a dip because of that energy loss and it not really having any other outlet. So you're just kind of burning it up (laughs) in the anger. Yeah. I find in my case, depression often kicks in after a lot of anger because I feel spent, you know, and it kind of makes me think about when she talks about equanimity in the book Mm. and what that really means and how there's a misconception. I think that equanimity 
you know, people think it means, oh, you never experience an emotion, right? You never get angry. You're just so in control all the time. And, and how untrue that that's, I think, not at all what she means by it. It, it does tie to strength and resilience that we brought up earlier and that ability to be flexible and come back to that and to choose what you're doing. Like that's really what equanimity is. It's not the absence of emotion or reaction. Yeah. Yeah. I always get frustrated when I hear people talking about the goal of meditation being to clear your mind right? because <laughs> you are setting yourself up for failure. If you were trying to clear your mind, I've done enough meditation to have had experiences where all of the chatter in my mind just passed through my mind. And I settled into a silence that was sort of behind all of that chatter, but that was not because I cleared my mind. It was because my mind just spent itself out and there was emptiness behind the <laughs> expenditure of energy on thoughts that I ignored or just let pass through. Right. But yeah, we have feelings, our body experiences, responses to stimulus, presumably according to my metaphysics, that stuff when we die, but that's my metaphysics. Until then, the body is going to continue being a stimulus response engagement mechanism. What did you think of her discussion about balance? There was a point where she's talking about balance where I felt like we were almost reading her own thought process and her own judgment of the word balance, because she actually says sometimes that that just feels like then you're settling for mediocrity. And somebody actually speaks up and says, you know who really likes the word balance? People who feel out of balance. Yeah. And I just, there was something about that example of how we can feel like something's important and then we can get swayed by other opinions coming at us and start to think, oh, well, you know, maybe that's not the right word and this, that, and the other. And we start to distance ourselves from what we meant by it in the first place. And I think balance is really one of those words that people can have a very strong positive or negative reaction to it. How did that strike you? I had sort of similar responses to the kind of thought processes that you're describing yourself having. I was reminded of the use of balance in the coaching training that we have all gone together, where the idea was planted that balance is not a thing that exists. Balancing is a process that we go through, that balancing is active. And people who are out of balance need some balancing. If you're out of balance, you can't get your feet under you. And so, yes, balance is really important. And and if you're out of balance and you're chronically like unable to feel stable, the craving is like for rock solid, something to stand on and just be balanced. That vision of balance is rigid and fragile because of its rigidity. But to have a moment of it when you've been out of balance and you haven't been able to find a sense of the nuanced handling of the different things that are at play in your life. Yes. Like, of course, it sounds absolutely delightful. And it is only by getting there and reaching the limits of the comfort it can provide that one can become open to the idea that maybe it's not the end answer. It was just a transitional phase you needed to stabilize for the moment. Yeah, because I think it's about about the ease that comes with not being at either extreme. Mm-hmm. Right. I know leaders, uh, Kate, who fall into the, the category you're describing where to an extreme extent, they're out of balance. And so the craving is the other extreme <laughs> of just uh, absence of anything, just so rock solid, but also 
you know, absence of emotion, stimuli, any anything whatsoever. And so I don't want to go so far as to say that this is inevitable, but it, but it's at least likely based on what I read in this book that folks who kind of do that, that it becomes a pattern in a way that you swing from extreme to extreme. And that's not really balance under this definition. You know, I think we see it in a lot of different ways. I mean, I definitely do this sometimes. I know leaders who do it where at work, they work themselves down to the bone, <laughs> right? And get stressed out and all the rest of it. And then go on vacation and turn completely off and are just totally doing nothing and then snap right back to the <laughs> high stress place. That's just a different version of, of what we're describing. But, you know, ideally, you're not at either extreme for long enough to become attached to that that extreme so that you can be somewhere in the middle that feels like it's more elastic, like getting we're back to that resilience thing versus versus rigid. Yeah. The elastic thing. So when I was in college and I was studying directing theater, so we're back at art. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a dramatic tension that happens in spacing between people. We talked about an elastic band of energy between people. And if they were too far apart on the stage, you couldn't feel the tension between them. You couldn't feel the interconnectedness between them and the energy of them interacting with each other. They were just two people on stage. And if they were too close, that elastic, there was no tension. It just sort of fell down. There's this place somewhere in the middle where actually you've got enough tension that you actually feel it flex and contract as movements happen. And it's such an alive place. And so in theater, as an audience member, that's where the I'm engaged, I want to see what's happening, where's that going to shift? And how is it going to be peace? And it's also if we have that experience of being in that elastic tension with everything that is around us, that's when we can feel our way into a system and sense from a presence perspective, oh, I want to make this step because it will have sort of this kind of shift on the whole system. And so that's where that presence piece, noticing what I feel in my body and my mindfulness and my awareness gives me power to change the world at a whole different level. Yeah. I would be ready to move to thinkaways unless there's something glaring that you wanted to make sure we talked about. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Okay. Right. Yeah. I can start. There's a lot to be with in this book. There were so many places where there was something mentioned in one place and then it echoed, but it was almost like echoing the other side of something, other places in the book. My thinkaway is a combination of two, two things that jumped out at me from the book. One of them is this idea of moving off the margins of our lives. The idea that sometimes we are very comfortable in a place of observation of being someone who's just watching and thinking about what are the limitations that we are placing on ourselves. So the idea that, as she says, we can discover which limitations are crafted by cynicism or hopelessness and go past them into the center of change, giving life to what we care about. That was something that really hit me in terms of where am I making assumptions about limitations? And if I really take a little bit more time to think about those, what's the source of those limitations? And is it possible that there are some limitations that I have crafted due to cynicism or skepticism and the idea that I can't make a difference? And what might happen if we turn that on its head and assume the opposite is true? 
and say, okay, so if I put that cynicism to the side, what becomes possible now? Love that. Mm-hmm. My thinkaway has to do with a metaphor that Sharon Salzberg uses between strength and water. This one really stayed with me because she talks about how it is that we can be strong in the midst of uh, chaos and hatred and terrible things in the world. And some of the difficulty with having strength comes from our own limited definition of strength, because we think strength has to be this rigid, you know, um, unmovable. Yeah. (laughs) Alyssa's Alyssa's flexing over there. Yeah. Um, there's a kind of unyielding energy to our traditional definition of strength. But what I like in the way she sets it up is that you can be strong and soft at the same time in the way that water is both strong and soft. It flows, it's often in a liquid form, it's kind of cute and mushy and flowy, but it has the strength over time to shape rocks and erode. It's responsible for a lot of the incredible beauty in our world, all caused by water and the kind of the the slow, intentional, focused movement over time. I really love that stripping away the pressure that comes with the word strong, that somehow you can't also be soft and you can, because that's the way water is. That's the way love is. A lot of these things have that, to use Kate's word, dynamic tension between the two. And you need both. Otherwise, you you end up at an extreme again. So I guess that was my think away is how can we all be a little bit more like water? (laughs) I think for my think away, I want to get sort of tactical and practical. The exercises in this book over and over again are different nuances of ways of practicing loving kindness meditation. The pattern between them is that they are a practice of tapping into the part of you that actually already can experience some tenderness towards something. And then from tapping into that space, finding some words to articulate well wishes on behalf of that tenderness. So my invitation is if loving kindness sounds too wishy-washy or woo-woo, or it feels like it's out there and it feels inaccessible, if it doesn't go like, go try it and look for Sharon Salzberg's work. And, and I think she's a tremendous meditation leader. And I think that her work in this area is absolute genius. And I recommend it wholeheartedly. But if it feels a little bit out there, maybe you can just play with when things feel difficult. Can I tap into the place where I have tenderness for something and wish it well, whether that's my dog or my child or my partner or the person who was just nice to me, letting me in in traffic or whatever, and just tap into a, may something good happen to you feeling for them and see what impact it has on you. And then the advanced practice is to notice if that change in you has any impact as you move through the world. I like that a lot. That was Leadership Arts Review. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It really helps us get the word out there. Tell two friends. Also, be sure to follow us at Leadership Arts Review on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn to get the latest updates. Our website is podcast.leadershipartsreview.com. Leadership Arts Review is a 4 Impala production. 
Music adapted from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods, under license.